You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. I'm well, thanks, Giles. And uh, it, things seem to be moving slowly in the electricity world, even though prices remain very high. But there's actually quite a lot going on. What's, what's been catching your attention recently? Well, look, yes, we've got, we've, um, we've got an interview um, in this program with uh, Blue Float Energy, the, um, the CEO, um, and that'll come up later on. But look, one striking development uh, emerging as we record this podcast on a Sunday afternoon is a takeover offer for GenX Power by a consortium led by Scott Farquhar, who is the co-founder of Atlassian. Now, of course, the other co-founder of Atlassian is Mike Cannon-Brooks, whose activities in the clean energy world are very well known, bid for AGL, um, joint um, funding of the Giant Sun Cable Project. The fact that we've got another very rich Australian making a bid for clean energy seems to be yet another landmark event. Of course, um, Andrew Forrest, the richest man in Australia, is a partner with Cannon Brooks and Sun Cable and has made his own sort of huge um, promises or um, plans for green hydrogen. So, David, I'm not too sure what you make of this. I mean, we haven't got the formal details of it yet, but just as a um, just as a signal to the market when you've got a big billionaire making a move like this, what is it telling people? Well, point one is there's not going to be many listed uh, electricity or energy companies, uh, electricity companies uh, left in the market. There aren't very many anyway, but they're disappearing. So maybe there's space for some new ones. Uh, the second thing it says that one of the reservations people have had about Gen X is that, uh, in fact, it seems that all the cards were held by Energy Australia, which has the output contract and has, uh, I think, options down the track to, to renew that. Uh, but now it seems as if other people don't seem to mind about that and that the value of a, a, a pumped hydro operator with prospects for growth, uh, no matter how far away it is from any load, um, seem, seem more attractive. I'm not sure that we can make any more of it than that just now. I'm just wondering, though, because the price of GenX has actually sort of fallen over the last year or so. It's sort of fallen by half, and, 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 and it's kind of been the case of most of the listed renewable companies. I mean, are they very hard things for sort of the share market to get their heads around? Um, well, it depends on the company. Like, I mean, the whole share market's going down. Um, GenX is in a, in, you know, frankly, it's not the time to be buying uh, as an ordinary equity investor a company like GenX because... Uh, so if you think about it, not as a, um, a pumped hydro company, but as a gold mining company, there are, there are two times when you want to own a gold mining company. Um, uh, when, it, when it's just exploring for gold and you can invent a fantastic story about how much it's got and how good it's going to be. And the other time is, is after the mine is operating and t- got its teething problems sorted out. The time you don't want to own a gold mining company is when it's building its gold mine. Uh, and you're getting all the cost blowouts, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and all the bad news tends to come through. Well, you know, on equivalency, Genix is kind of in that phase at the moment. Not that I'm saying there is any bad news, uh, unlike its uh, much bigger pumped hydro pro- brother, um, 
great brother Snowy Hydro, which is both late and, and over budget and, you know, uh, but nevertheless probably making a huge amount of money at the moment thanks to its contracting position. So was that a deliberate reference to the gold mining company by the fact that the uh, the, the solar farm is actually um, located on uh, next to an old solar f- um, go- um, go- um, gold mine and the pumped hydro pit has been actually being built inside an old gold mine? Look, I don't want to waste any time on the Valuable Energy Insider podcast telling old mining jokes, but I'm always reminded about the... Uh, uh, about my friend who told me to invest in the golden shaft. And I said, why? And he said, uh, well, I'll get the gold and you'll get the shaft. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, sorry, I went there. And I'm sorry, you went there too. But anyway, that's okay. Um, another point too is that with another listed company um, possibly leaving the share market board, it just actually, it's actually quite fun having a listed renewable energy developer listed on the market because it gives you rare insight into what they produce and how much it costs and the size of their contracts and things like that. And so, yes, it's another sort of cloak of invisibility onto the market. But still, interesting stuff. Um, David, uh, Clean Energy Summit was held in Sydney last week. Um, big get together. Um, first one for a couple of years, obviously, because of the COVID um, situation. Um, look, some really interesting talks. Um, a great deal of frustration about green hydrogen projects, the fact that Australia is very good at talking about it, but a lot less good at actually sort of delivering projects. And that was a really interesting uh, presentation um, on the Wednesday. Um, but I thought probably um, some of the most interesting stuff was came from Daniel Westerman, the um, AEMO chief, who told us what we kind of already knew, which is firmed renewables are by far the cheapest option um, of any, if we're going to, you know, as we're replacing the sort of the ageing kit in the grid. But he just sort of made it in such a way, you know, he said, by a country mile. And I guess, given the current political debate in Australia, it's worth just repeating over and over again. Well, and and of course, he's got the authority to say that as the uh, head of EMO, you'd have to be nuts not to listen. And I think the federal government is listening, Giles. And that brings us to the other news, which is that federal parliament's resuming this week. Um, and it'll be inter- so there's debate. You know, the two things that are, I mean, it's fine for Daniel Westerman to say that, but we actually need to get more of these projects actually built. The thing that keeps I keep worrying about is that we don't get enough new uh, wind farms, uh, particularly in Queensland, but also in, in New South Wales uh, being announced. Uh, I'd like to see some more wind farms built in Tasmania, it's got, which has got fantastic uh, capacity factors down there and not that far away from the market. Uh, so not enough announcements there. We've got the federal government uh, tar- legislation, a lot of debate about how meaningful it is. Uh, I, I personally don't think a 43% target is that meaningful. I'd rather see an expansion of the RET scheme myself and, and perhaps an REC, uh, the equivalent of one of those for a firming market. Uh, and then I'm interested more broadly in what's going to happen with the safeguard scheme, which is frankly the only piece of concrete legislation that the federal government's actually really committed to that actually has any meaning at all and about which almost nothing is actually known at the moment. Well, exactly. Yes, it's going to be interesting. So it's, it's once again a bit of a sideshow about this 43% target when that's legislated. I mean, basically, it doesn't actually come with a mechanism. Um, and I guess it's a way for the Labor to... Well, Labor's, well, Labor has gone from saying it wasn't needed to now it's absolutely essential because of the message it sends to the community. And you've got the Teals and the Greens saying, well, do we actually support a 43% target? Because at least it's something on the board and trying to leverage as much as they can out of it. So there's like a ratchet mechanism or, or, or something. But... Um, once again, we just see this political fight or what seems to be setting up a political battle, which, as you point out, actually gets away from the actual heart of the issue, which is actually having these decent policies, not just the um, 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 
just just the, not the just political guns. slogans, you know. A, a well, of, I mean, Chris Bowen, look, there's no doubt in my mind that Labor is, is infinitely preferable to what Angus Taylor was peddling. But, you know, in all honesty, that's an incredible low watermark. Uh, it's also true that politically Queensland remains difficult and probably on average Queenslanders, despite the Greens wins up there, are, are less committed to the sorts of things that, that you and I are committed to. It, the most encouraging thing I have heard Chris Bowen say uh, on our podcast and also I believe at the press club is that Labor is not against putting emission standards on vehicles. As I keep saying, that's a relatively attractive thing. I get so sick of watching during the footy, you know, ads for four by four utes, you know, use 100 gallons a litre or whatever they do, uh, uh, you, you know, and, and is just not the future of how vehicles should be in Australia, but they're cheap, you know, and every tradie yes. can get one. Uh, so we, we need to do better. We need a more growing up uh, approach to it. Yeah, exactly. Look, we'll probably leave the general discussion um, here, uh, David. Um, we've got an interview to deliver to you now. Um, earlier this week, um, David and I spoke to Carlos Martin. He is the CEO of Blue Float Energy. Blue Float Energy has four offshore wind projects in Australia. They're very early pro stage projects. Um, you know, they've got like a, <laughs> a defined area and probably not much more. Um, two of them are proposed to be floating solar, which is kind of the next thing after offshore wind. Um, anyway, um, we spoke to Carlos Martin um, earlier this week and we'll hear from him just after this message from one of our sponsors. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. Carlos and Martin from uh, Blue Float Energy. Uh, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you very much for having me here today. Uh, well, look, um, you're on, I think, is a bit of a whirlwind tour of Australia. Um, Blue Float Energy, in conjunction, I think, mostly with your local partner, um, Energy Estate, has um, identified four big projects totaling more than five gigawatts of offshore wind in Australia. Um, tell us about them and, um, and what have you seen this week? Yeah, so uh, we see Australia as one of the most promising markets worldwide. It's been a year and a half that we have been working together with uh, our partners from Energy State in uh, identifying the highest potential areas, um, carefully mapping um, where uh, could be the first developments of offshore wind in, in Australia and most importantly engaging early with the local stakeholders to um, explain our plans and to make sure that we, we get their feedback and involvement uh, to, to maximize the opportunities for um, development and um, economic transformation. Um, so. I was really eager to to to, to come to to Australia uh, and 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 have uh, all the meetings we, we are having these days with quite a number of uh, of different uh, administrations at the three level of the administration, many people at the local level, um, and it's extremely encouraging to see that there is 
a, a very strong al uh, alignment around the potential for offshore wind development in the country. So yeah, really, really excited about being here and really excited about um, being pioneers in the development of offshore wind in the country. Offshore wind in the country. Yeah. Well, can you just tell us a bit more about the projects then? I think you've got four separate projects. Um, the latest one, I think, um, um, has just been announced off the coast of Portland, although that's going to be sort of fixed bottom rather than floating wind, which I understand is the technology of the other ones. Um, yeah. Can you just sort of run through the four projects that you have? Yeah, absolutely. So we have two projects proposed in New South Wales and two projects proposed in Victoria. Um, the ones in Victoria are fixed bottom. Uh, one of them is in uh, the Gippsland coast and the other one in the other side of the states in uh, Portland, off the coast of Portland. Um, so these are projects uh, that um, we use, as I said, fixed bottom uh, technologies since they are relatively uh, shallow waters and um, they respond to um, very specific needs in each case. In the case of Chipsland, there is significant core capacity which is planned to be uh, to go offline uh, relatively soon and we see uh, offshore wind as the um, best solution to um, replace that capacity and connect to the, um, to the broader um, network in, in, in Victoria. Whereas Portland is, has a very strong industrial logic to connect and provide uh, vast, uh, affordable and green power to, to Portland. The sites in, um, in New South Wales uh, would be floating. Uh, the, um, the, the seabed is, is deeper um, of the cost of, uh, of, of New South Wales. And we have um, also two projects proposed. Uh, one of Yawara called Wollongong Offshore Wind Project and the other one of the coast of Newcastle called Hunter Coast Offshore Wind Project. These are projects that have a, a dual objective of um, uh, feeding in renewable power in significant amounts into the, to the grid but also uh, helping um, fueling the industrial transformation uh, in both areas, uh, both in traditional uh, industries, but also uh, supporting the development of um, green hydrogen, which is one of the key um, development areas on, 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 on both um, uh, on both Yawara and uh, Hunter Coast. Uh, these are the four projects. Uh, they all have um, also a very strong industrial logic in themselves because we believe they can. Uh, represent a very good opportunity for developing a uh, industrial supply chain in offshore wind in the country. I just wondered what, what's, the, what's the appetite like for um, contracts from offshore wind? I mean, we've seen in the recent UK auctions um, just remarkably low prices for offshore wind. I mean, I think offshore wind is now the cheapest new um, generation. Um, um, sort of bulk energy um, in the UK, which is remarkable when you think about it. You go back five or ten years, people have thought that would have been impossible, but it's now cheaper than onshore wind, and it's sort of easier to do, and, and cheaper than solar, and of course, um, any of the fossil fuels and nuclear. In Australia, though, it's probably a different story. Australia, because we don't know yet, because we haven't actually built anything. So I'm just wondering, sure. when you're talking to potential customers and off-takers, I mean, is there interest in offshore wind, or is it really too early to have those sort of discussions because you're more thinking about actually getting projects underway, getting the licensing agreements, and and, and actually, you know, sort of, you know yeah, um, just just thinking about more, more about how these things will be built rather than um, who for. Yeah. 
Um, so that was one of the um, good positive surprises of, of, of this trip. Um, I, I was expecting to, to, to have to do a, um, much more educational work and I, 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 we could see that very clearly all the stakeholders we, we talked to have um, already uh, learned uh, a lot about uh, offshore wind, they know what it is about, they know what it entails and we've seen a strong support for uh, the development of, of, of this new source of uh, power in the country. Um, the logic is um, uh, the potential for um, providing an affordable um, uh, green um, type of power and the example of the UK is a good one. Um, just uh, four or five years ago it would be unthinkable that uh, the cost levels achieved in the last CFD round could be achieved. Um, and it has been an eye-opener for the rest of the world to see that uh, not only it's, 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 it's affordable, but it's, it's very cost-competitive. And we see that the fundamentals are here in Australia to, um, to go the same route, um, provided that the right uh, pieces of the puzzle are set uh, for that objective. And that's exactly what we're working on, on setting the basis for um, similar uh, levels of cost to be achieved uh, in the country. Um, so, uh, I think um, that is um, well, something we can, we can uh, expand further, but there's some elements in the puzzle that, in our opinion, uh, uh, will have to be there, uh, but I think the, the, the country is progressing in that direction. First one is to be ambitious in, them, in terms of the, the size of the developments and the long-term perspective about this industry. These are uh, developments that require uh, significant uh, critical mass to be to be competitive, uh, and that's the advantage of these type of developments because we are talking about one 1.5 gigawatts of um, capacity in each specific project. And if um, uh, the, the 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 government at federal and state level set ambitious objectives for the medium and long term, there will be investment coming into the country to develop a local supply chain just like um, the UK did that will support um, the industry and will allow to reduce those costs uh, over time. So we're very optimistic about the possibility of being very competitive here as well. We have very good wind resource comparable to the UK around 43, 45 even beyond uh, that in terms of net capacity factor um, which is I can say world class in this, in this industry. Yeah, uh, Carlos, maybe you could just tell me a little bit about uh, Blue Float, um, uh, because uh, what have you actually got going at the moment in terms of operating projects around the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Blue Float Energy is a global developer of offshore wind farms. Um, we are headquartered in, in Madrid, in Spain, although we insist, we always insist that we consider ourselves a global company more than uh, Spanish or any other any other country and that's because from the beginning we have looked at this market as a global market and we have um, established our presence in, in multiple geographies. So uh, despite being a relatively uh, young company, uh, first of all we count on a group of professionals with a long experience in the offshore wind industry. Uh, so we have all the experience which is, which is required to um, develop these projects and turn them in, into reality. And second, we have been uh, able to expand uh, relatively fast in globally, in, 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 and we, today we are present in eight different markets, uh, including uh, Europe, uh, APAC, and, 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 and the Americas. UK is our bigger market. Uh, we have um, been awarded three projects uh, totaling close to three gigawatts of capacity in the recent Scott Wind lease auction. 
that's one of the landmark um, tenders that have um, happened recently in the industry. Um, and we are very proud of the results, especially considering that this was a uh, so-called beauty contest. Price was capped um, and the selection of the, of the winners has been based more on the, on the quality of the proposals and um, commitments in terms of supply chain development in, uh, in Scotland and so, UK. So, so just on those projects, uh, yeah. I think you're in partnership, aren't you? I mean, this was the awarding of the leases, I, I think I read. Uh, what, mm -hmm. what, what will um, Blue Float's uh, share of that partnership be? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the three projects we have been awarded, um, we are in partnership in all three of them with uh, Falk Renewables, which is a, um, I think it's the largest onshore developer in Scotland and a very, uh, a company which is very strong in terms of community engagement and, uh, and has a strong local presence and, uh, and reputation in the, in the country. And on top of them, we have another partner in one of the projects, which is Orsted, the global leader in offshore wind. And this is the first floating uh, project they have been awarded, um, which for us is um, something we are particularly proud of because they, they selected um, Blue Fruit and Falcon Renewables for this uh, particular development. Uh, yes, so what, what is your share of those projects? So um, we have uh, half, 50% of the, of the sharing, two of the projects together with Falcon Renewables and uh, one third of the shares with, um, with, with, with Falcon and Orsted in the, in the third project. So we have equal, equal shareholding on those projects. Thank you. And I, I think your, um, um, and they would be your, your most developed uh, projects at the moment, is that fair to say? Or have you got some projects that are more advanced than that? Yeah, so yeah, they are probably the, the, the most advanced in the sense that um, we have now secured the lease space and this will allow us to uh, uh, start investing heavily on uh, consenting, uh, on characterizing the, the, the sites, measuring wind, uh, conducting the geophysical, geotechnical campaigns. But it's not the only developments we have uh, in, across the globe. So we have projects on the development also in Italy, in Spain, for example, and in all these projects we also uh, conducting site surveys, uh, uh, site works to uh, be able to conduct the environmental impact assessment and uh, hopefully get them consented soon. Um, um, plus um, uh, in, in, in other places like uh, tai, uh, Taiwan, where we also have one project on development, we are conducting similar surveys. So I think all these geographies, I think we're progressing in parallel. Uh, timeline of uh, the execution varies a lot depending on the on the regulation and on development of the market, but we expect to have a significant capacity on the construction within this within this decade. Yes, and, and I, um, your capital, your shareholder is uh, five four seven energy, I think, which in turn is pretty much a subsidiary. Uh, maybe a hundred percent subsidiary of Quantum Energy Partners, uh, which is a, a, a very large Houston-based, mostly oil and gas developer. Is that is that fair to say? That's uh, that's perfectly correct. So, um, all these developments, of course, require significant um, capital. Um, even in in the consenting phase, you need to conduct quite a number of of, of, of works activities, um, which. Um, Whenever you go out at sea, uh, become quite expensive, quite 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 quickly, and we are we are really um, uh, happy to count on the support from um, Quantum Energy Partners through its uh, investment vehicle in a renewable power called Five or Seven Energy. And I think that's 
that's a very interesting story because uh, Quantum Manager Partners is one of the most successful private equity firms in the US dedicated exclusively to the uh, energy business. Uh, traditionally in oil and gas, where they are a market reference. And it seemed very interesting to see that they have um, relatively early, already uh, four or five years ago, decided to diversify into renewables through 547 Energy. And 547 Energy has already made uh, seven different investments in the renewable space quite successfully. Uh, Blueford Energy being its um, um, uh, portfolio company dedicated to the development of offshore wind globally. So we, that's the only thing we do, offshore wind, with this global perspective. Mm. And, and um, just coming back to Australia again, mm -hmm. I was looking at the capacity factors. I, I haven't really had a look at the, the Portland one yet. And we've, we've talked a lot about uh, Bass Strait here on this podcast and a lot of work's been done on it because of the Victorian government target. But I, at first glance, it's very hard to get excited about, say, the, the New South Wales one, the Hunter one, where when I look at the capacity factor, it's only about like 42%. And a number of commentators uh, who were quite well regarded in Australia, um, AEMO uh, through its ISP and also the CSIRO through its arguably debatable co uh, cost modelling, have ended up concluding that in Australia, as compared to much of the rest of the world, offshore wind uh, is going to find it more difficult to get a place because we have such a good onshore resource. Uh, and that's even before we get to floating offshore wind. I just, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it must be hard sitting in Spain to have such a, 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 a um, full view of the Australian picture. Yeah, well, um couple of, of, of points there on, on, on your latest comment that, that's exactly why um, and that's the, the strategy we follow globally that's exactly why we we have formed a consortium to, with uh, energy state an Australian company and the combination of the of, of the skills of the two companies is something that makes our strength in our view because we can combine our global capabilities in offshore wind with their local presence and the capacity to to engage with uh, with the local uh, stakeholders and understand uh, regulation in detail. So um, we, we, we know Australia well, uh, and we know Australia well through uh, through Energy State, which is a, a, a very reputable and, and experienced uh, developer in the country. Um, coming to your uh, comments about uh, net capacity factor, uh, well, I would say that 42% uh, in offshore wind is definitely not bad. It's, it's quite good, actually. Um, of course, there's, there's places in the world with higher capacity factor, but um, we, are, we are quite happy about, about those levels and we definitely believe that they can drive to uh, competitive uh, energy generation. Um, so, so, Carlos, yeah. what, 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 you know, I mean, I, I used to cover a company called Infogen, which is now owned by Iberdrola. Uh, I'll probably pronounce that badly. And they had uh, wind farms in Germany and in Spain, you know, where the capacity factors were 22, 23%. And, and uh, of course, uh, 40 something percent looks great compared to those. But across the whole of the national electricity market onshore in Australia, mm -hmm. I think you could expect to get 36 or 37% capacity factor. Um, and, and um, you know, at, at a capital cost, that uh, is clearly, you know, uh, half uh, what, uh, what it will be in Australia. So unless there is some other reason, like, 
you know, social license regarding onshore transmission. Um, I, I just, it's just not obvious to me, um, you know, uh, how it's going to be uh, so offshore is going to so easily get into the picture in Australia as it does in, in Europe or in Asia. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, um, it's not against uh, onshore wind that we're comparing these capacity factors. We are comparing them against uh, offshore wind in, in other markets. And it's definitely uh, uh, quite a good level um, of, of, of NCF that, 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 that we have here. Um, then compared to onshore wind, um, there's a number of factors that need to be taken into account. The first one is that if we had to reach a target level of 20-30% renewables in the power system, I would probably tend to agree with you. There's, uh, for for a, a modest amount of renewable in the market, in the system, there's probably other sources that are uh, better suited. But I, I don't think that's what we're talking about. We are really talking about responding to the climate emergency. And for that, you need to reach the objectives which have been set by the government of reaching, I think it's 82% by 2030 and 100% renewables, even beyond 100% renewables, because uh, there's going to be a need for significant amount of power to fuel um, other capital, uh, sorry, uh, energy intense industries in the, in the near future. And if you want to achieve those, those levels, first of all, it's impossible to achieve them with one single technology. Uh, independently of that being onshore wind, uh, solar, or, or even offshore wind. You need to combine all of them because a, they have a complementary uh, production profile. Second, uh, one of the key issues that uh, the Australian market face, and that's a, a recurrent topic in, in many of the discussions I participated here and, and also with other um, European players, is the congestion in the grid. So there needs to be a, a massive deployment of new interconnection capacity, which is needed but uh, which will take time. And uh, the big advantage of offshore wind is that you can produce very close to those centers. Uh, the four projects that we have commented um, will allow to, to connect to the, to the grid without significant uh, onshore grid to be developed. Uh, not even significant offshore grid because we are relatively close to, to, to connection points. Plus, um, the fact that um, uh, offshore wind has a more a stable and constant production profile um, also allows to reduce the backup you need in the in the grid, either in form of uh, big plants or um, or um, or storage capacity. So when you take all these factors into account, we are very much convinced that this will this needs to be part of um, of the generation mix. It will be part of the generation mix. It will not be the only source, but it's clear that other sources will not be the only ones. Uh, uh, available if we need to 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 meet this beyond 100% renewables in the market. I'll hand back to Giles in just one second. My my final question just is on your uh, you you've partnered uh, with Energy Estate, but will you have uh, blue float people on the ground here in Australia or? or, yeah. or, or, or? Well, we we do have blue float people in the ground. Um, our uh, country manager Nick Sankey um, is is based in Melbourne, and now we are expanding the team. Um, we are. Um, creating a, a, um, an ever bigger team because um, we, we are now getting into uh, some of the uh, consenting and development work which is needed to push these projects forward. Um, uh, and we are doing that by also bringing in the country some of the talent which is needed in this market because it's relatively new in the country and we definitely need to, need to leverage experience. So we are bringing 
people who have been working for 10, 15 years in this uh, offshore, wind in, uh, offshore uh, wind industry in Europe. Um, we are bringing them back to, to, to Australia uh, so that we, we, we can have um, uh, an experienced team on the field to push these projects forward. So it's really a joint uh, team effort uh, with a um, one team made of energy state people, but also blue float uh, energy people. I'm just wondering, um, Carlos, um, the UK offshore prices that were achieved, um, um, I think it was um, uh, earlier this month, I think translate to a, an Australian price of $65 a megawatt hour. Um, we don't know, um, we don't have the discovery yet in Australia what those prices will be. But are you but Charles, those are 2012 prices, I think. I don't think they're too... Anyway, uh, that's not the numbers I saw. Okay. Um, okay, I... So, 2012 prices. Um, yeah, yeah, that's how I think the UK numbers are quoted. Anyway, anyway, let's let's not worry about that now. Yeah. yeah. Well, what sort of price range are you? Uh, do you have any forecast for where the offshore wind prices will sit in in, in Australia, Carlos? And um, and I'm also interested that how close or how much more expensive um, floating offshore wind yeah. may or may yeah. not be. So th there's a constant in the offshore wind uh, industry is that everybody who has tried to predict the evolution of uh, offshore wind prices has um, systematically failed in their predictions. And they have failed um, by being too conservative on the evolution of these uh, prices. Uh, these 37.5 um, uh, pounds per megawatt hour, uh, 2012 uh, prices, that is correct, is something that um, few people could have believed just a few years ago, when the UK started developing its um, its um, its policy for decarbonisation, it was betting on a combination of nuclear and an offshore wind, and now it's really going full steam offshore wind because that is today the cheapest source of power in the country. But that's not the only reason why the UK is betting very strongly on, on offshore wind. They are doing this because it's also the uh, biggest source of power that they can count on uh, in, the, um, in the next few years. Uh, it is also the vast amount of power that can be generated in um, a few projects that they see as a big advantage in their uh, path towards, um, towards uh, net zero. So uh, I wouldn't dare giving a prediction. What I can tell you is that um, offshore wind will have to be part of the mix uh, if you want to have a competitive um, uh, production capacity uh, in a net zero economy. Um, and that is taking into account not only the uh, production cost at the meter, but also taking into account all the features that go with it in terms of interconnection, so um, uh, grid requirements, um, uh, necessity for, um, for backup, um, and, and so on and so forth. So again, uh, we shouldn't look, I think it would be a mistake to look at, a, at, the, at the picture as if it was a fixed one, because it's a moving one. It has been moving for 20 years and it will continue moving uh, forward. The uh, downward path along the, the cost curve has been very significant and all the uh, knowledgeable people in the industry are predicting uh, this uh, trend to continue in the next few years. 
sorry, just uh, lost the mute button. And, and, and what will you be expecting to see or hoping to see from either the state or the federal governments to sort of kickstart the, uh, the offshore wind industry? I mean, the Victorian government's obviously come out with its own targets and it's, um, it hopes to have the first offshore wind generated by 2028. It's um, nine gigawatts by 2040. There's an interim target. Um, do you, is, um, are you going to need to see sort of similar sort of contracts for difference either at the state based or, or, or would the federal government have a role to play here? Yeah, so that's a very good question because um, what we were just commenting depends to a large extent on having a clear roadmap uh, on the development of this industry. It's important that we don't see offshore wind as um, a one or two project um, uh, opportunity. This is really a, 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 a long-term opportunity uh, that can uh, see the development of, it's difficult to set targets, but uh, why not talking about 10, 15 giga, uh, gigawatt uh, in, in, in the water in, in a 10, 15 year period. So there's really the possibility of creating something very substantial, and that needs to be down through a clear roadmap. So what do we need in that roadmap? In the short term, uh, there's a few elements that we know the different administrations are working on. First is to fully develop a regulation for offshore wind. We need to have clear rules about how to allocate feasibility uh, licenses um, and the commercial licenses moving forward, and that's something uh, the federal government is working on. But we also need to have uh, an ambitious plan in terms of creating renewable zones in the country. Um, um, that uh, will allow uh, for developers to, to propose um, specific projects uh, that can receive these feasibility licenses. What is important is to uh, think about this in the long run because we, it's not just about uh, building one or two or three or four projects uh, in, the, in, the, in this decade, it's about uh, setting the zones that will see the development of, um, of, of, of a, 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 a larger number of projects uh, in the short, but also in the medium and long term. So that is a process which is also ongoing. Very important that um, uh, the authorities are ambitious in that sense. And we, based on the f discussions we have been having so far, there's definitely a, a strong support from local communities to have um, uh, renewable zones being declared in, in places like um, Yawara or, or Hunter Coast or um, Victoria. Okay, Carlos. Well, look. Um, thank you very much for that. I think we'll probably bring the um, the, uh, the interview to an end here. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, I hope you enjoyed your stay in Australia, and um, good luck with the uh, future endeavours. Um, it'll be fascinating to see um, which of the projects manage to get up and um, how much offshore wind we actually do have um, ten years time. So, thanks for thank you very much, Carlos. Thank you very much. And that was Carlos Martin from Blue Float Energy. Um, David, look, an interesting perspective. Uh, Blue Float, I guess, like most people, or m most of the, uh, are just one of a number of different players coming into the offshore wind market in Australia. Um, it's yet to be seen. I guess we, we're a long way from deciding um, whether uh, floating in solar is going to compete with uh, fixed uh, offshore wind. Uh, sorry, floating, off, floating, floating wind. Sorry, is going to compete with uh, fixed offshore wind. But certainly, there's there's a huge amount of interest um, in it. But as you said in the interview with Martin, I mean, there's a fair bit of competition from the um, onshore wind. Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, the whole New South Wales hydrogen strategy, which I also heard Dominic Perrottet talking about in Japan briefly, 
Uh, sounds good in a newspaper headline if you don't know anything about it, but I mean, it's a long, it's, look, it's just not what I'm focused on. Uh, let's stop the dreams and get on with the reality. The reality is the New South Wales uh, tenders that are coming up in October for around about a gigawatt uh, of, of renewables. But, you know, that's we need one of those tenders every three months. You know, we need a gigawatt every three months somewhere being announced. And that, that's what I really care about right now. And it'll be fascinating going into some of the detail too of this actually how this tender has been constructed. So uh, if any developers out there um, having a look at this and looking at the New South Wales legislation and its proposed tender arrangements, we'll be fascinated to get your feedback um, as to how you think this has been run because this is new territory. It's very much about central control over the development of renewables in these renewable energy zones. So really interested to get your feedback into how this is shaping up. David, I think that's probably a wrap for this week's um, Energy, uh, Energy Insiders podcast. It's going to be fascinating to see some of the politics happening. It's going to be fascinating to see um, if this Gen X bid goes forward and what happens it's to It's not that. just, uh, Giles, the Gen X bid. I want to point out that there's a whole lot of auctions of uh, existing assets and, and, um, and potential wind farm and solar farm assets that are going on at the moment. Uh, capital markets, there's some big funds being put together. Octopus is putting together a very big fund in Australia. Uh, and uh, we mentioned Sun Cable. That's certainly something to keep an eye on. You know, sometime over the next three, four, five months, uh, we're going to see uh, Singapore awarding some contracts for that, I think. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of uh, big news to come over the remainder of the year. But the news that would most gladden my heart uh, is to see, as I keep saying, announcements of more new projects or indeed the federal government actually saying we've got, not that we've got to do a lot of work on an emission standard for vehicles but guess what we can cut through all that work and we've seen it works in Europe and look here's, here's, here's what we're proposing if you've got a problem with it come and talk to us uh, and we'll sort that out. Good on you, David. Uh, we'll be back again with a podcast um, next week. Um, thanks to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon and uh, Jet Charge as well. Thanks to you, David. Thanks to everybody out there. Please give us your feedback. Love to hear from you. And um, that's it for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.